Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Santosh, for eight years, I have been introducing myself as your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc. And, yeah, yeah. And do you know what movie has been released in this last week, uh, assuming I get my editing done on time? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. It, uh, I think there was a new Pokemon. Hold on. Was that a couple of weeks ago? No, there no. Was, it, yeah. No, come on, man. Arach <laughs> I'm, t I'm talking about Arachnobro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is, it's been a, I think, kind of a guiding star for all Marvel fans because there's been a deluge of all of the other episodes and movies and things, but you're, we're getting the new Spidey, right? The new Spider-Man. Yeah. The new Spider-Man no way home. And mm -hmm. much like one of the main characters seen in the trailers, I am sitting here berobed and ready to do some magic. <laughs> hey, I'm berobed too. <laughs> I, I know no magic though. I, I know very little magic. Well, when you start talking about Spidey, and I promise there are no spoilers anywhere in this episode. In fact, mm. we're about to do a hard pivot because Ooh. we've seen a lot of different villains appear in the Spider-Man trailer. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think people got super excited that they would see the entire Spider-Man franchise show up in this movie somehow. And one of the ones who's not seen in the trailer, but is a pretty well-known Spider-Man villain, so well-known mm -hmm. that he's got his own set of uh, movies from Sony, is oh, yeah. <laughs> Venom. 
Ooh, yeah. It's it's uh it's like Bane but without the uh the mask. That's a Thomas Hardy joke. And so in the most perfect for me segue. <laughs> this episode is dedicated to all the medical uses of venom. There, I yeah. did it. <laughs> I'm so happy. You put together all of your loves and segued right into another love, which is, you know, medical adjacent creepy stuff. Yeah. So we, of course, won't be talking about alien symbiotes because that is in our earliest episode, Parasites Lost. That is. Yeah. Everybody uh, just take a little pause right now. Go back, listen to that one. And welcome back. Let's talk about the medical use of venom. There is some really cool stuff digging through, I guess, the earliest history of toxicology. That's really cool, everything that you found. Uh, I have a good understanding of medications that are derived in modern times from venoms, uh, snake venoms, bee venoms, but you found uh, uses going all the way back to some of your favorite eras, huh, Josh? I did, but but I'm going to jump around a little bit in history just to give you an overview of how Danger Spit came about. <laughs> yeah, Dan- Jane Danger Spit? Yeah, it's produced by Danger Noodles. <laughs> oh, snakes. Yeah, snake venom. Yeah, Danger Noodles. Yeah. <laughs> Am I going to have to serve as a translator throughout the remainder of this episode? I guess that depends how internet savvy our audience is. Oh, that's true. So the earliest known use of venom in medicine dates back to around 380 BC in ancient Greece, when there is a description in Aristotle's Historia Animalium describing how venom can be used to produce venom antidotes. Oh, okay. Because, you know, all those ancient Greek heroes like Hercules and Jason constantly getting bit. And the only reason we still have <laughs> legends about them is because clearly someone figured out how to treat that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, aside from the very traditional treatments like amputation. Have you ever wondered why snakes are so tied to medicine? I mean, look at one of the main medical symbols, the staff of Asclepius. The caduceus, yeah. Well, the caduceus and the staff of Asclepius are two different. One has one oh, snake. Okay. The caduceus is the staff of Hermes, god of merchants and liars and thieves. And that's got two snakes twined around. But unfortunately, because Hermes was a messenger god, it got tied up with medicine. It's a whole thing. But <laughs> Okay. All right. But a single snake wrapped around a staff is associated with Asclepius, the ancient Greek god of medicine. And his snake staff was believed to be able to cure a patient or a wounded person just by touch. Now, there's a couple of reasons why snakes are associated with the healing arts. And it's not just, oh, look, that guy's got a snake on him. Beat it to death with a stick. You know, (laughs) the snake is connected with pharmacology and antisepsis, as most snakes, in fact, all snakes, possess an anti-venom against their own poison. Uh, so the snake yeah. is related, of course, to sciences with poison and death, such as toxicology. It's connected okay. with the underworld from a metaphysical thing, not only because it crawls on the ground, but because it br- but because it brings death. And the ability of the snake to shed its skin has been associated with the circle of life and Renaissance spirit. So in terms of 
modern anti-venom toxicology, the snake twisted around a stick or the snake beside a pharmaceutic cup. Almost every medical field has the snake in some way referenced with its logo. That's so cool. So this is, we're going back, you know, uh, 2,500, 2,400 years. And this type of concept has pervaded and kept relevance in even our modern day type of thinking. Although I guess not everybody thinks about it and sees it all the time, but you're absolutely right. There's just a very instinctual recognition that usually nowadays it's the caduceus. But if you see that symbol of a snake wrapped around a staff or a stick, automatically you're like, oh, that's doctor, pharmacy, healing, something like that. It's kind of cool to see how long that the symbolism has endured. So we're going to mix a little bit of Greece, a little bit of India, bringing our two cultures together to talk about the earliest toxicologists. And when I say earliest, I'm going all the way back to Mithridates of Pontus, who had an empire across the Black Sea that was powerful enough to challenge the Romans. And he had his international team of investigators, uh, mostly Agari, Aghori priests from India. Okay. Uh, Oh, Oh, yeah. Okay. They sought a universal antidote to neutralize all poisons. Let's let's go into this for a couple moments. In 67 BC, Mithridates suffered a terrible sword slash to the thigh. And okay. he was bleeding profusely, near death, but the Agari priests, the Scythian Agari priest, stopped his wound with serpent venom. Oh, that makes a lot of sense if they were using the coagulative properties of snake venom, meaning that if they're using the components of snake venom or snake venom as a whole that would allow blood to clot very quickly, you'd have to make sure it didn't get into the bloodstream, of course, right? Because that's how snakes kill you or, you know, because that poison actually gets into the bloodstream and your blood clots in your arteries and veins. But if he's able to just get the blood to clot on the outside, then you're forming a scab very quickly. So they, the Agari doctors used, or the Agari priests, used small amounts, minuscule amounts of step viper venom, a discovery that has only recently been made by scientists in the modern day in the field of venomics. Oh, uh, well, uh- I love it. There's a study called Venomics. Venomics. And, okay. And now so that component of step viper venom has been used to help develop hemostat, which is a major export to emergency rooms and battlefields around the world. Oh, very cool. That's the stuff you can kind of break open and just slap right on a wound mm-hmm. to, make it, to make it clot up. Like if you have an emergency you know, spurting wound or something, you need to put it right there. Of course, by this time, you know, the reason the Agari Scythian priests could do this is because they already had a pretty good knowledge of venoms. So why was Mithridates collecting this international team of venom investigators? Well, he sought a universal antidote to neutralize all poisons. He was so afraid of assassination by poison, partially because his father had been poisoned and he suspected it was his mother who did it. Oh, boy. So in order to avoid the same fate, 
he took a page out of the Princess Bride and began to ingest small amounts of venom and poison. Oh, God. Over a span of years. (laughs) Okay. Okay. You know, a, a cocktail of tiny doses of toxins and antidotes, which in some sense is the prince, you know, it's the same principle as immunization. So he began to develop immunity. And as a result of this paranoia to develop immunity, eating lots of little poisons, you know, never go up against Mithridates when death is on the line. <laughs> so uh, th- this does make sense, right? To some extent, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and put the disclaimer out there, Josh, right now is that please do not try this at home for the love well, of God. <laughs> we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about how this actually works, but the idea itself is valid. This would yeah. work for a certain value of poison. Right, right, right. Because in, just like you're saying with vaccination, you are stimulating the, uh, the antibody production in your body to be produced using low levels of whatever venom components or venom that you're using. So it doesn't overwhelm you, but you start to form immunity to it. So in a lot of ways, anti-venom is kind of like immunity to venom. It's, it's the same response. So this idea uh, led to the development of the first historical antidote called Mithridat. That was a mixture of antidotes against known venomous reptiles and poisonous substances of the day. Okay. Now, okay. the the process of consuming small amounts of poison to therefore make yourself immune to poison mm-hmm. became known as Mithridatism. Okay. All right. Gotcha. Gotcha. I should let everybody know, by the way, that this doesn't maintain itself over long periods of time, the immunity will stick around as long as you're undergoing the dosing regime. So it's it's a little creepy, Josh, but once you start this, if you want your immunity to last, you've got to keep ingesting those small amounts of poison. You know, it, it, it's not done and done kind of thing. Yeah, so unless uh, the Wesley was taking Iocane powder every day, sprinkled yeah. on his breakfast cereal, unlikely to work but yeah now however it has been suggested that rasputin the russian mystic rasputin's survival of a poisoning attempt you know before he was shot stabbed and drowned Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) by the way very excited to see that weird like interpretation of that character in another movie the king's man which looks like a lot of fun so it's been suggested that rasputin was a follower of Mithridatism and used to regularly consume small amounts of poison to survive these attempts. Oh. But Santosh, do you know this goes all the way back to your cultural heritage? Indian epics talk about this too. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is, it's part of our kind of mythology and mythos. There's no real evidence that this happened in reality, but yeah, we have legends about poison women. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of mythology about snakes in and around india because there are so many of them (laughs) yeah we do and the the stories i found dealt with maidens called vishakanyas so yeah yeah i think that's a great pronunciation actually so if you want to hear it in the actual accent it's vishakanya 
and that translates to poison girls or poison maidens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and usually maiden, just like you're saying, they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't marry or or have any relationships. Well, they were well, they that. wouldn't they wouldn't marry because the right. it was said during the rule of King Chandragupta Maurya mm-hmm. around 320 BC. He would select beautiful girls and administer poison to them in small amounts throughout their childhood until they grew up, making them insensitive to poison. That seems reasonable because you could have food tasters or other ones. I mean, it doesn't seem reasonable to do to somebody, but it seems no, no. believable. <laughs> yes, you're right. In the same way that uh, kings in Europe would have poison tasters, but this was so that if the poison taster would get a poison you could use them again (laughs) they wouldn't they they wouldn't be like one and done type of thing so i i understand exactly what you're saying it's practical now now that we have a practical way to employ it these maidens were believed that they were so venomous that making love with them could result in the death of their partners so they were employed as sexy assassins. <laughs> and this kind of mythology, it's been there. It actually, you know, is in contemporary movies and you see it in literature, folklore. Really, though, in terms of our history, we really don't have uh, actual evidence at all that these folks existed. And the truth of the matter is, Josh, to actually ingest enough poison so that it kind of came out in your secretions, like if saliva or vaginal secretions or whatever it is, that would be, it's next to impossible. You can't, you can't really do that. You, you'd kill them. <laughs> so you're saying there's a chance. Uh, but... <laughs> yeah. So, it's important to note that, as we said, Mithridatism is not effective against all types of poison. And right. this idea of acquired you know, immunity is only possible with biologically complex poisons to which the immune system can respond. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. It so is- for, for instance, a lot of these, the components of the poisons, Josh, and I know you're going to outline them a little later, they are large proteins like enzymes, right? And big proteins like that are very, very good targets for our B cells and T cells to form antibodies. So if you have those big molecules like that, that you can say, oh, that's a foreign body and, and your immune system, you can attack it then you can create immunity. But if you're talking about very small molecules that are harder to detect by the immune system and that wreak havoc in different ways other than enzymatic kind of action, then it's very difficult for our immune system to recognize those particles and actually form an antibody against it. Now, a couple of things that don't strictly relate to venom, but I do want to bring up in the context of Mithridatism uh, when you're thinking about can the body develop a resistance to poisons by taking it over and over and over for years, the mm-hmm. very first one that should help you answer yes is alcohol. Oh, okay. Now, but kind of in a different way, right? Because this is a tiny little molecule that's processed by your liver. And as you ingest more or more regularly, 
you increase actually the rate of your own enzymatic processes in the liver, they get upregulated so that they can clean the alcohol out of your system faster. So those are the folks you're talking about. Like it takes more alcohol to get them drunk. Well, if you try to drink in one day what a longtime alcoholic would, you would die. Like that's yes. they are literally yeah. developing a tolerance to a poison. Right. Right, but if right. that's but if that's too preachy for you, I'll throw in another. <laughs> okay. Arsenic. Ah. Okay, like that that sounds like you couldn't because this is a metal, right? So this doesn't sound like you could build the same type of immunity on the immune side or like kind of antitoxin you know, increasing enzymes in your liver on the other side, because this is a very different type of poison. Well, here's the thing. You wouldn't, arsenic has been traditionally used to poison people for centuries. Oh, but... long, long. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a fantastic poison. That and doesn't as, sound right. And as a result, <laughs> some people have built up a genetic adaptation, granting them higher resistance, uh, showing oh, that humans oh. can develop a genetic tolerance for arsenic. For example, if you grew up in the Argentinian Andes, where okay. hundreds of years of drinking arsenic-laced groundwater will have left you with a tolerance that you really don't have to fear arsenic poisoning unless you're dealing with massive amounts. Oh, okay, so this is a little bit different here, Josh, right? Because this is evolution, right? And evolution, the, the thing that people always forget about is that this is a population, and then you eliminate those individuals in the population that don't fit the environment. So in this particular case, this is a little bit sad because you would have to have a population where those who didn't have a specific mutation and would get arsenic poisoning before they could have children, right? They would die. <laughs> they would die. So you're left enriching a particular gene in this population. So that's that's what happened over time, you're saying. So there's an evolution mithridatism as well as a acquired mithridatism. What happens when you combine them? Well, you get how the liver reacts to cyanide. Got it. Okay, very cool. Okay. The, the enzyme rhodinase converts the cyanide into a much less toxic compound, which allows humans to ingest small amounts of cyanide in food like, you know, apple seeds or... Uh <laughs> Or the gas from cigarettes or uh, oh. open flames. Oh, God. Th this is why you've got those individuals, aside from other factors, but why they can just smoke and smoke and smoke. And they're like 70, 80 years old. And they're still smoking like a chimney. But the cyanide produced by it, they would have a higher top. So if you tried to poison a heavy smoker with cyanide, they okay. would last longer than somebody who had not been smoking for years because they would have built up an acquired tolerance on top of the evolutionary tolerance. Got it, got it, got it. And, <laughs> well, I'm not saying that this should be done, but this holds for quite a few other toxins which we know as drugs in modern society, right? So opiates, uh, much the same way that you gain a tolerance to it and, you know, it, it takes more to kill you if you're a chronic opiate user. Uh, likewise, uh, cocaine. Um, same kind of thing is that with chronic use, 
then if you get a large dose of cocaine, it would take more to kill you than someone who is cocaine naive. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm not saying to this is getting very, very uh, suggestive. John. All right. So <laughs> let's start getting into the hard science and then we'll talk about how Venomics has affected us today. But before we say anything else, mm. do you know the difference between something that is venomous and something that is poisonous? I I did learn this and I there was a mnemonic or something like that that at, at some point it, it helped it stick in my head. Basically, if it's poisonous, don't eat it, right? Because it's it's in the actual animal. So you bite it and you get poisoned. It bites you and injects venom into you. So if you get bitten by it or stung by it, that's venomous. If you eat it and then get poisoned, that's poisonous. There you go. So yeah. venom <laughs> is any poisonous compound secreted by an animal intended to harm or disable another. Very so cool. Okay. All venom is poison, not all poison is venom. There <laughs> That's that's a line that should appear sometime in the Venom franchise. It it <laughs> sounds like it's it's a great line to put like in a hero or in an uh, like a villain when they're bearing down like in a in a comic book panel. It sounds mm -hmm. perfect. <laughs> so Venomics, the scientific analysis of Venom, offers some pretty impressive solutions. So let's talk about some of the multifunctional toxins in snake venoms and their and their things. So cool. the major protein classes found in snake venoms, the things that give them their ability, and one of the really cool things is snakes can turn their ability to be venomous on and off. I don't mean like, oh, I'm going to be venomous today, but not on Thursday because I have a date. I mean, <laughs> the saliva, they can make their saliva become venomous when needed, such as when they're hunting. And mm -hmm. then they're not just floating around with a sack full of things that could kill them in their cheeks all day. When they are not yes. actively using, it's broken down into non-dangerous compounds or those same compounds that sit around in their brain or other areas that could kill them have the genes turned off or non-active. So, in order to have venom, the major protein classes found in snake venoms are, this is a great list. Ready? Okay. Phospholipases, mm -hmm. metalloproteases, serine yep. proteases, and my personal favorite, three-finger peptides. <laughs> I, lo <laughs> I love the three-finger peptides. That makes me so happy. It is... <laughs> That has to do with the structure of the protein, but it's still, just to say it, it's so much fun. Oh, no, I've been attacked by a venom with a three-finger peptide. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's it's cool to see because when you actually see the um, the the structure, you know, like under an electron microscope, it really does look like someone, you know, with like, like a Yoda hand or for people who watch The Mandalorian, the little... Uh, Grogu hand, like three fingers. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it looks just like that. So I, I want to talk a little bit about this. Um, actually, before I have you explain the actual protein and research aspects of it, Santosh, I do want to talk sure. about one study uh, that got me thinking about this whole episode to begin with, which is recent research that has been released studying about whether or not humans could ever become venomous. 
Oh, here we go. <laughs> this is, you, we were all headed towards this at some point because there was, every single time we come around to these, it's, you know, how can I become Wolverine? How can I become Sabretooth? <laughs> all or, right, all right. Or Spidey or Venom or you know, whoever. I just yeah. want to be a superhero. Could humans ever evolve Venom? The short answer <laughs> is yes. Yeah. <laughs> the the more disappointing longer version is probably not in our lifetimes. Yeah. But we do have the toolkit to produce venom, as all reptiles and mammals do. So I'm yeah. going to talk a little bit about the genes, and then Santosh will talk about the proteins. Yeah, I will say there are very few venomous mammals. So... In the kind of the tree of life, when you go to reptilians, snakes for sure, and you come over even to some of the other like lizards, like legged reptiles, you do see some venoms. But yeah, there's just like a handful of venomous mammals. It looks like it wasn't as much of a survival strategy. My very favorite, Josh, even to this day, duckbill platypus. The The male has a venomous spur on his toe. Do you know there is actually a venomous species of primate? It's very cute. And it was actually a little heartbreaking because it was uh, like trafficked as uh, like an exotic pet for a while. What, what's the name of that? One? The slow loris. Slow Loris, that was the one, because it's got a, a, but it actually doesn't have a venomous bite in and of itself, right? It has to lick its glands, like underneath its uh, its armpits or something, and then coat its tooth in the venom. So it doesn't have that secretory venom the way that a snake does in the glands in the mouth. Let's talk about the actual study. It doesn't focus on the toxins themselves as those evolve quickly and vary. There are complex mix of compounds that vary depending on the animal or insect or creature that has become venomous. Instead, Alexander Mikheyev, an evolutionary biologist at Australian National University, has focused on housekeeping genes uh, associated with venom but aren't responsible for creating toxins themselves. They started mm -hmm. with the genome of a brown pit viper, the Taiwan habu, uh, because it's an invasive species in uh, Okinawa. Okay. And they know the function of all the genes that were present. So they just looked at the genes that are associated with venom. And they cool. found a constellation of genes common across all amniotes, or amniotes are animals that fertilize their eggs internally or lay eggs on land. Gotcha. And most of these genes are involved in folding proteins because venomous animals have to manufacture a large quantity of toxins, and toxins are made of proteins. So all the ones that Josh mentioned are, you know, uh, you know, small to large. They have enzymatic type of uh, uh, jobs. So they're big proteins. And that's true of all of them, except for uh, the, the three finger toxins, which are actually non-enzymatic. The same sorts of regulatory genes are found in abundance in human saliva, there because <laughs> we also make a bunch of proteins and enzymes to digest food or to start the digestive process. So we've yep. got the genetic scaffolding. And mm -hmm. humans along with mice, 
also already produce a key protein used in many venom systems. This is why I'm convinced that we're only, you know, a few yeah. years away. <laughs> okay, okay. These proteins are called calicreans. They are proteins that digest other proteins. They're secreted in saliva and they're because they're so stable, they don't simply stop working when they're subjected to mutation. They're a key part of many venoms. Therefore, you get beneficial mutations of calicreans that can make venom more painful or more deadly. Cool. Okay. And aside from all of this, what you're saying, we also have the apparatus in our mouth, right? We have the salivary glands, which produce a lot of these under our tongue, at the side of our cheeks. So you're saying that we just need a few genetic tweaks. <laughs> and, and of course, like we'd have to make sure that our bodies produce the antivenom too, so we don't poison ourselves, right? But you're saying if we had a couple of these tweaks, then, you know, the same stuff that we have in our saliva could just, you know, follow a few mutations and then change enzymatically to become very similar to some of these snake venoms. I'm saying we could wait for evolution to do this for us, or we could look to CRISPR. <laughs> can, can I ask why? Why I want to be venomous? <laughs> yeah. Why not? <laughs> I, I don't have a good answer that's like, to that. That's like asking, do you want to wake up tomorrow with a tail? Sure. <laughs> I, I don't have a good reposit to it. You're you're absolutely right. But here's the thing. Mm. Yes, we absolutely could evolve venom. But we're okay. unlikely to because venom usually evolves as a method of defense or as a way of subduing prey. And precisely what kind of venom depends on the animal's lifestyle. And we have, by and large evolved tools that replace our need to subdue prey or uh, defend ourselves. So let me give you a few examples. Um, and it's not okay. even just between species. It's even within species. So you have desert snakes that... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You know, if they're living on the desert floor, the venom acts mostly on the circulatory system. Uh, where it's, is that neurotoxic? No, that's the uh, cyto, nope, I'll get there. Um, <laughs> venom acts mostly on the circulatory system because it's not terribly difficult for a snake to track a dying mouse a short distance on flat ground. Sure, but sure. 
when you get up into the mountains where it's more rocky and uh, snakes may hunt mostly lizards or fast-moving animals, they produce neurotoxic venoms because if you're not immediately paralyzed, the prey can run into a crevice and disappear for good. And therefore, you would have wasted all that venom. Right. And there is a decent chance that, you know, once it goes into there, if you use like the the kind of poison that you were talking about before the one that causes like coagulation and hemorrhage that actually make you it, it it basically messes with your clotting system so if you have that kind of a thing yeah the animal might die in that little crevice but now you can't get to it and you've lost your meal so that's that's to obtain for food sources so we could just drive to McDonald's so unless i'm really in a fight <laughs> with like say the Taco Bell drive through person, I probably don't need venom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or your uh, your Postmates driver, which I right. hope you don't. Tip your Postmates driver, people. <laughs> now, if you're looking at creatures like shrews, they use venom to outpunch their weight class to subdue much larger animals. Or platypuses okay. that have a venomous spur on their hind legs mostly Yay. use their venom in fights with other platypuses. Like I said, we probably don't need to evolve venom. Doesn't mean we shouldn't just for kicks, but we don't need it. <laughs> However, what this research is doing by de- understanding what genetics are responsible for turning the ability to produce venom on or off, this is real important. Because if, say, a cobra's brain were to start expressing the genes that the venom glands expressed, the snake would immediately die of self-toxicity. Learning how to control what a gene does in a specific part of the body leads to cancer treatments. Why? Because turning diseases on or off or turning tissues growing out of control or secreting products where they shouldn't is something that is very tied to cancer. So that's kind of the long view of this paper, which was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. If only there was some handy abbreviation for that journal. Yeah, I mean, we usually just use the letters, like we say PNAS, but yeah. Right. Yeah. So let's talk (laughs) about some of the proteins, Santosh. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those, and then we'll dive back in to what venom has contributed to modern-day medicine. Yeah. So the first three that you mentioned are enzymes. They break stuff apart. And the last one, the three-finger toxin, is a little bit different. But these are all made of proteins, just like you said. So just to go back, uh, what you were saying before, DNA that we have, that's our map for making things, goes to RNA, which is then translated and made into proteins. So it's really cool, Josh, because for all of these, we can trace as you see differences in the protein structures of all of these proteins, you can actually make a a genetic trace through saying, uh, oh, this evolved from this, or this is more related to this. So it's really, really cool to to see how all that interacts. Phospholipases, okay, work on phospholipids, which are part of cell membranes, really integral. So, you know, they're going to induce, you know, pain, they're going to have neurogenic inflammation, they can make platelets stick together, so you get coagulation. And then 
the big thing with this, Josh, is you get necrosis. So it actually breaks down tissues because the cell membranes literally fall apart. And then you can also get paralysis from this one. Um, the next one, the metalloproteases that you saw, mm-hmm. snake vent SVMPs, again, causing lots of pain. Um, you do have a lot of inflammation going on as this particular protease starts to break molecules down. And then in your blood vessels, actually, there's a basement membrane in your capillaries that actually keeps blood from seeping out. Okay. That gets destroyed. And then the endothelial adhesins, the one that actually hold your blood vessels together. So now you get hemorrhage and bleeding, right? This is a horrible stuff. And likewise, necrosis and possibly paralysis. Um, the, the third category. Third category, which are the serine proteinases, act at a very particular amino acid and break proteins if if it sees a a particular, what we say, a moiety. So something including serine in there. And this one actually focuses on, uh, you know, uh, leukocytes are white cells. They actually migrate to the site of inflammation. It actually inhibits that. And the big thing for this one is serine residues are really important in our clotting cascade. So we have uh, factors seven, factor 10, these get activated and all of a sudden your blood clots right in your blood vessels as it's flowing through. And finally, the three finger proteins, three FTX that we say, uh, the, the, those are the biggest and heaviest kind of neurotoxic uh, inhibitor. So it'll pre and post synaptic toxin and you block the neuromuscular transmission and the, your muscles kind of freeze up and lock up. So every single snake doesn't have to have all of these components turned on all the time and they can have a mix of some and mix of the others. And small mutations in these four categories will change the activity based on the prey that they're attacking and what type of proteins they have, et cetera, et cetera. But you can kind of see it's not just like one molecule, right? It's a cocktail of these things. And just like you were saying, you've got some that are going to be more heavy in some of these proteins and cause paralysis and make them freeze in their tracks versus others that have more of the phospholipases and the serine proteases that will actually go into the circulatory system and and turn their blood into jelly. So they just, you know, those are the animals where, oh, you can get away for a little bit, but, you know, pretty soon you're just, your heart's going to just slow, slow, slow as it tries to pump jelly and then you're going to drop and then I can casually come over and pick you up and eat you. Um, in which, fact, the metalloproteases are known for their hemorrhagic activity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's that's the one where you're saying, oh, you can deliver a bite and you can hang out. So it's kind of like that, um, you know, when we were watching our kung fu movies and, you know, they, they'd hit a punch, a pow, and then they can say, okay, now walk away. And the person would take like five steps. Ah, uh, Yes, the five-finger death punch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they all have different names depending on what particular movie which you're watching but now i've got to go watch and watch or go back and watch a bunch of kung fu films now did you mention the three finger toxins i did yeah yeah that was the the ones that 
we mostly think about as having the paralytic effect. And it's of the four that we talked about, it's the one that doesn't really have enzyme activity. It has this neurotoxic activity in a different way. Yeah, so it's the Vulcan neck pinch. Yes, yes. Induces flaccid paralysis with just three fingers in a protein. <laughs> it does, it does. It's uniquely kind of uh, designed, you could kind of say, or, or evolved to fit into certain parts where your neurons would send off neurotransmitters, so in that synaptic area, so presynaptic and postsynaptic, and just stops the signals going from your neuron to your muscles. So your muscles go, hey, I'm not receiving any signals, so I'll just like, ah. And then, you know, the animal flops down and then you get eaten. Now, while we'll talk in a moment about medicines derived from venoms, I do want to briefly touch on treatment if you have been envenomed. Treating snake envenomation. Yes. Envenom oh, man, that sounds like a minion thing. Envenomation! <laughs> it really, like, they could just shout it, yeah, in the middle of uh, their, their nonsense talking. Banana. I like that. Envenomation! <laughs> <laughs> and I think we've mentioned this before in earlier episodes when we were doing true travel medicine. But, you know, please don't. Uh, cut open the skin and try to bleed out the poison. <laughs> Please don't try to suck the venom out. All these things that y'all see in movies. So No, actually, the yeah. best thing you can do is whip out your cell phone and get a uh, selfie with the snake. Because if they can yes. identify... <laughs> No, 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 no. I'm serious. No, because no, no. I believe you, but that's that's kind of the scary thing is that because a lot of times, right, when a snake is threatened, it'll bite and run away. So we're not asking you to go chase down the snake. It's like if the snake is there. <laughs> yeah, if, if the snake is around, definitely get you a snake selfie. So animal-derived antivenoms are really the only specific therapy available for treating snake bites. Uh, this is a group of polyclonal immunoglobulins that are mm -hmm. derived from a animal blood that has been used. So basically you take the venom, you put yep. it into a horse or a sheep, their immune system starts mithridatizing, trying to build up these, <laughs> trying yep. to yep. build up these immunity. things. And then you yep. harvest that blood with all the immunity yeah. And inject it into a person. Absolutely. And this is, we've spoken about this before, not just with venoms, but also with toxins. I, I believe we spoke about it with botulism toxin, right, Josh? Where we actually have uh, the, the uh, people, the actual technicians that test for botulism, which is in Northern California, they are vaccinated in this way with botulinum toxin. And so their blood that, you know, you actually do, they are the antitoxin. <laughs> so that's, that's a human based one, but this is the same kind of a concept. So you're, you're, you're getting the antibodies. Venom has been used to manage problems from heart disease to diabetes to chronic pain. And in fact, there are already six drugs approved for use by the FDA in the U.S. that are derived from venom. 
maybe something related to coagulation or bleeding, one of those things. So I don't believe that any of the ones that off the top of my head, like so heparin and warfarin are necessarily venom derived. But so something there that either to stop bleeding or to thin out the blood if you're having, you know, excess clotting, like one of those two types of things. So where where am I at? Not heparin, but integralin. Uh, okay, okay. To those of you outside of a hospital setting, that's largely meaningless. To <laughs> everyone who works in a hospital, eptifibatide. Yeah, m- much easier to say integralin. Yeah. <laughs> is modeled after components in southeastern pygmy rattlesnake venom. And Tiny, is little teeny tiny rattlesnakes. And is widely used throughout the world in anticoagulation therapies to reduce the risk of heart attacks. Oh, cool. Okay. Okay. So often when somebody has a STEMI, a a heart attack, and goes for an angiogram, a lot of times they'll be put on an integralin drip, which is derived from the snake venom. Now, it's only used in severe cases because it does have a possible side effect of thrombocytopenia uh, or, you know, a rapid decrease in low platelets. Yeah, (laughs) you don't want that where your platelets just crash. And that is a feature, not a bug, because eptifibatide, integralin, binds Mm -hmm. to platelets reducing the risk of clotting. But if it binds too effectively, you lose the platelets themselves. (laughs) Gotcha, gotcha. So that's why it's really just for short term, like when you're in the cath lab, just like you said. You were right on. It's, It's straight to the heart, the circulatory system. Gotcha. Okay, cool. From another species of pit viper called the Bothrops atrox or Bothrops mugeni. I love okay. Latin names. They're so fun. <laughs> All right. Gotcha. Gotcha. And these are uh, pit vipers found in the South American Andes, also used in heart issues. And this toxin or this medication is called batrozo- batroxobin, a serine protease made mm-hmm. by the Bothrops atrox and Bothrops mugeni. It cleaves fibrinogen which is very similar to thrombin. Mm -hmm. And it's used as a drug, which you'll love. It's called reptilase, used to (laughs) stop. Just like the pit vipers in our very first story that saved Mithridot, Uh uh, it's used to stop bleeding. It's an anticoagulant. Okay, and that makes a ton of sense because the serine proteases, that family has that particular property. And just like I said before, it's pro-coagulant. So it turns on the clotting cascade. So that one, so reptilase from B-atrox is used to stop bleeding while, while batroxabin, oh, this is a rough episode for me. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> well, batroxabin from B-mugeni makes a drug called defibrase or used in a system called vivostat that breaks up blood clots. Oh, so okay 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 hold on so you've got the same serine protease but you've got two different derivatives of it that that like proclotting and anticlotting two different derivatives of it from two different species but the same family of pit viper of pit viper oh that's so cool okay so just a you know couple of different mutations or whatnot in the 
in the actual parent protein, and you can have completely disparate activities. That's so cool. Now, here's where I'm going to start tying it all together to, again, anybody who doesn't work in the internal medicine or hospital setting, probably not going to be as excited by this, but I just have to share. Okay. So now that we've talked about batroxabin, which I still don't know how to pronounce, (laughs) uh, it's used in the Vivostat surgical system where a person's blood is taken just before surgery, a small sample, and exposed to batroxabin. They then take the resulting clots that form. Those are harvested and dissolved that forms a fibrin glue used on the person during the surgery. So, oh, uh, so you you make a th- this is like a blood patch. That's exactly okay. what it is. <laughs> That's so cool. Okay, this <laughs> this, al- this almost sounds bad, scientist. I'm going to steal some of your blood so I can make a patch of blood out of it. <laughs> oh, you oh you want mad scientist? Well, yeah, the yeah. name the name of this test it's a specific coagulation test designed to assess the fibrin formation from fibrinogen. Basically, how good will this blood patch be and how fast will it form when I am trying to perform surgery on this person? So, okay. Okay. The time- because people, people are different and you can have varying responses to the exposure to the toxin. Yeah. And we use this all the time. Now, you probably know this test by another name, the PTT or APTT test. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So prothrombin time uh, or activated prothrombin time. Okay, cool. But the name of the test is known as reptilase time, which sounds sounds like a snake superhero. Yo, dog, it's reptilase time. Oh, gosh. And reptilase time is a modified thrombin time when thrombin is replaced with the enzyme reptilase from snake venom. Gotcha, gotcha. I'll correct myself just a little bit, Josh. I'm so sorry. Partial thromboplastin time, not not prothrombin time, which is just PT. When you use reptilase instead of just regular plasma, you have reptilase time. Reptilase time. <laughs> hey, guys, what time is it? It's reptilase time. <laughs> That's something. It sounds like something that you'd get in a either a partner or a villain of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Sounds like a good Spider-Man villain. Reptilist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's reptilist time. And then, you know, he he goes after Spidey and Spidey has to swing away. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see it. So that's a couple of them. Now, I will tell you, uh, we'll, we'll come back to snakes in a second. Okay. Um, I'm going to briefly step over to a different one used in chronic pain from the cone snail oh uh, okay okay it's a so tiny the, co- the, co- the cone snail has a venom of its own huh the cone snail has a venom of its own that is so insanely painful it can actually kill creatures uh, roughly human size but we went in took this venom and developed a chronic pain drug from it called ziconotide oh, which is okay a synthetically made version of conotoxin used to treat really severe pain. Like you have to, we're, we're talking like methadone levels of pain because because this cone snail venom is delivered as an infusion directly into the cerebrospinal fluid using an intrathecal pump system. 
Wow. Okay. Okay. So you you have to put a, a catheter somewhere where you can get into the CSF, uh, you know, in the meninges kind of thing, and deliver this straight in. Snake venom, as we've already covered, prevents clotting and disrupts the nervous system, mostly mm-hmm. by preventing platelets from attaching together. Right. But right. copperhead snake venom can also prevent cancer cells from attaching to other cells and prevent them from signaling for new blood vessel growth. So tagging gold nanoparticles with snake venom Mm -hmm. increases their uptake by tumor cells. So if you bling out some snake venom, (laughs) it can actually fight cancer. (laughs) This is a really cool... We've modified other uh, drugs this way with these kind of delivery systems, and I, I absolutely love it. So you basically, you put some sort of tag, and in this case, it's bling, which is totally awesome. So you put the bling on it, and this makes it more attractive to kind of uptake so that what you're doing is you're trying to deliver your poison or your toxin in this case to an individual cell rather than having the side effect of the toxicity hitting your healthy cells. That's what you're trying to avoid as much as possible while delivering your dose. So that makes a a ton of sense. But I love the fact that you thought about it as blinged out snake venom. (laughs) <laughs> you're That's tagging awesome. you're tagging gold nanoparticles with snake venom so yeah, more yeah. so more tumor cells eat them uh gotcha. now nanoparticles tagged with the vague snake venom act specifically on tumor cells without affecting normal cells because right. new snake venom delivery systems to suppress tumors are being developed now let's actually talk about how the snake delivers like what's what's the snake delivery system? Because we, we yeah. use a lot. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're talking about teeth. We're going to talk about teeth. So when scientists are studying snakes, they focus on two kinds of venomous snakes: front fanged snakes like cobras, mm-hmm. and the viper family. These two groups are the most researched because they're large enough to produce quantities of venom that scientists can easily break down into parts and study. And they survive the toxicity of their venom by storing it in highly acidic glands that neutralize the compounds, which remain neutral until the snake bites its prey. Once it's out of those acidic glands, the venom can become active. Got it. And since most animal bodies keep themselves at a neutral pH... (laughs) the venom's components can do their damage when the snake injects it. So it's all right. acid-base chemistry. Um, <laughs> it is, it is. We're like uh, our cellular processes in our bloodstream, we don't want them to be acidic or basic because then they won't work properly. So unfortunately, that's our downfall because that's an environment where the snake venom can work. Uh, which makes sense because there are also enzymes <laughs> that are performing a biological process. And the reason high quantities of venom are so important is because you need a lot. For example, not a snake, but the most expensive liquid in the world Mm, comes from the Death Stalker scorpion. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is a different venom delivery. This isn't biting. This is stinging. Yes. And these scorpions have to be milked by hand one by one. (laughs) Oh, God. 
A single scorpion will produce just two milligrams of venom at a time. So a gallon of Deathstalker scorpion. <laughs> Where if you were to ever find it in a giant friggin' drum like oil, yeah, okay. <laughs> Thirty-nine million dollars per gallon. Damn. <laughs> um so that's why so it's important to have a good quantity of venom as well as quantity of creatures from which you obtain venom and thankfully sure. the coolest named person like one of my favorite scientist names in the world okay okay has started a project to do just that are you ready <laughs> i'm braced i'm braced i'm ready zoltan Takax. <laughs> that's awesome where is he from zoltan is uh, I- i'm guessing eastern european Zoltan is the pharmacologist and founder of the World Toxin Bank, who earned a PhD from Columbia in evolutionary studies on cobra venom, Okay. currently serves on the University of Chicago factory, and now travels the world in search of snakes and other venomous creatures, collecting their tissues for toxin RNA and DNA, assembling a toxin library for drug discovery, and he founded the World Toxin Bank to single out the best of toxins for medicinal development. <laughs> this is so cool. So you have folks in Svalbard, right, all the way up north that are like, we're going to preserve plants because, you know, we know that they might become extinct and there's climate change and we may need it for humanity or for whatever purpose in the future and then there are others who are like oh yeah we're going to save uh, specific cells and they they bank cells so like at atcc and you know and this guy is like i'm going to take all the, the those deadly stuff and just put it in one place <laughs> that's really brilliant he's I like love- the reverse indiana jones like <laughs> and he's like why did it have to be snakes and he's like because that's where the venom is. That's where the venom is. But here's what I love about Zoltan, aside from his amazing name, Josh. At some point in his mind, in his life, this guy is a brilliant, you know, he's he's nerding out on stuff because he has a love or appreciation of a particular thing, whether it's, you know, this scientific principle or that scientific principle. And his brain went to where he was like i'm gonna store a bunch of venoms (laughs) and he nerded out and geeked out on it until there was a bank a repository for venoms from around the world can you imagine that level of it's like do you know we have friends who are collectors right like Pokemon and Funko Pops and that kind of thing, like that kind of obsession, but for poison. Oh, if I had as many poisons as I do Legos, I would not be allowed to live near anyone. (laughs) Absolutely. So let's close out the episode as I tell you a few of the really cool things now in the Toxin Bank and being studied around the world for possible future use. Okay, okay. And these are all developed from various creatures' venoms. Not not all snakes, but they are all venom. So So, we have mentioned uh, we've mentioned a couple of mammals like the platypus. We've mentioned scorpions, uh, spiders as well, Josh? mm Mm-hmm. Okay. I know we haven't done a lot of spiders in this episode. So 
without focusing as much on the creature, I'll, I'll mention in passing, but we have Integrin antagonists like okay. Controstatin, and that blocks a bond between cells and tissue that can revert one of cancer's invasive mechanisms to stop cells from migrating. So a snake venom product may eventually help prevent metastasis, one of the worst complications of cancer. Awesome. Uh, more than half of the venom of honeybees is made up of a peptide called melatonin, which is the cause of the burning sensation that comes along with the sting. But okay. once again, if we bling out those bees, gold, <laughs> na- gold nanoparticles with melatonin can punch holes in the envelope of HIV without affecting human cells. So that means gold-plated melatonin could one day be part of a vaginal gel to prevent HIV transmission. Oh, that's so cool. So not when you're infected, but when those little viral particles are floating around trying to find a host. Yeah, so it could could prevent HIV, and that's something we could get from honeybee venom. Um, That's awesome. The Death Stalker Scorpion, that $39 million a gallon or uh-huh, 130 yeah, yeah. a droplet from hand-milked artisan scorpions, <laughs> yeah. okay. forms chlorotoxin that okay. binds to tumor cells. Adding a fluorescent tag means that tumors will light up, allowing a surgeon to see the boundaries. So it's been used to make tumor paint. <laughs> And we have crude versions of this where you can actually just drip a dye, uh, you know, onto a tumor to find its boundaries, you know, without injecting it and that kind of a thing. But this would allow for so much more precision, Josh. That's awesome. It's it's a paint by numbers or a cut by numbers to remove a tumor. (laughs) Resect by numbers. I absolutely love that. That's so cool. Resect by numbers from a death stalker scorpion. Great, great <laughs> stuff. Uh, sea anemones have venom I, I peptides. Love I love that word. I love saying anemones. And one compound forms the basis of an experimental drug called dezalatide that's just about to enter phase two clinical trials for treating autoimmune disease. Because Ooh. instead of suppressing the whole immune system, the sea anemone poison very selectively blocks a specific channel in a particular type of cell that you see in many autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, and lupus. Uh, and that's being okay. developed in Seattle. And then, of course, you have spider milking and all these. So there's a lot of different things that we're seeing venomous creatures be used to create. And it is a super exciting area of research. So I guess when it comes to venom research, it's time to let there be carnage. Bandage? Carnage. (laughs) Oh, I love how you segued right into that catchphrase. That was awesome. So (laughs) that's it for this week. Uh, As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can find links to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially in the show notes, along with links to our brand new website. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people who have just been bitten by a snake on the street as they're taking a photo of it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And And for the love of God... Call poison control. <laughs> don't, try <to> do <laughs> don't try to do this stuff on your own. 
Uh, links for further reading will be in the show notes. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. And until next time, as always, Santosh, you want to you wanna play us out on this one? I think you know the outro by this point. <laughs> Absolutely. Wear a mask, socially distance, get your jab, and when you've done all those things, if you're able to find a place that will have you and you're feeling good about it, happy travels. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.